Remember that if you like this content and want us to keep making it available to the public for free, then please support us at patreon.com slash solidarity house and your support allows us to continue to do just that uh, to put out local and national and international stories and interviews that everyone can access Sadiq Bhattacharya is an organizer with Central Jersey DSA and is getting a PhD in political science at Rutgers University. He's a widely published political writer and a poet, including with a poem at Cowboys on the Commons, our website. I understand that you even do visual art, uh, which is the, the Eurocentric term for who you are would be a Renaissance person, but that seems to be a very inadequate metaphor. Your work is concerned with liberation in the widest sense. Let's go. Let's go. But let's go ahead and jump right into the to the article. Um, so we've heard of Obama derangement syndrome during the Obama mm-hmm. years. People talked about Obama derangement system. You're talking about our syndrome. Uh, you're talking about what we might call Obama disillusionment syndrome. The starting mm-hmm. point of your piece is for that for many people especially of of a particular age and generation in the united states there was this optimism uh, about the symbolic value of that election but that quickly became complicated and was really complicated even mm-hmm. at the time I, mean, I feel like we sort of knew this is not really going to solve these problems but this is incredibly momentous uh, but then that you know that sort of tension really grew for a lot of people didn't it yeah, I mean, like, I'll be honest, like, the one of the things I like to do when I write about these scenarios is also be pretty transparent as to, like, what my politics are and how I've changed. So at the beginning of the Obama presidency, it was pretty understandable given our age and what we experienced from Bush, because Bush, the Bush years was the big thing for a lot of me and my friends who I guess are, like, millennials and stuff. So... Yeah, what, what you're saying is kind of like what I would say is like at the beginning, there is this kind of hope and change message. And I know some people like to say that, uh, you know, Obama, it was the fault of people to read into Obama. But he was actually, he was projecting progressive ideas. I mean, it was certainly nowadays it'd be seen as like center right-ish now. But back then, given given just again, the Bush years, the war in Iraq and everything else and how he was presenting himself, there was an element of of him really projecting a very progressive image. Like we're going to, you know, again, like there are things that he broke promises on, but he did talk about dealing with Wall Street. He even said that in his second campaign for his reelection, right? He did talk about how even to some extent, like when Mitt Romney was talking about in the second run up, like talking about Russia, he did say to him, like, you're, uh, your your uh, the 1980s or something called and they want their foreign policy back. So there's elements of that that was there. And I'm just saying that because I think that's important to remember too. It's not just like, you know, people were just, you know, you know, seeing this guy and were just like enamored with, you know, um, having a clear change in terms of also like, you know, here's this first uh, person who's African-American, who's black. It wasn't just that there was substantive things there too beyond that. But yeah, like, you know, if you look at that presidency, and I remember talking with friends, there was always these um, tensions that came up, especially around Occupy when that happened. There was definitely these 
real clear lines being drawn. I remember friends being both not necessarily anti-Occupy, but being kind of reticent about it at the beginning, because again, they were still convinced, and so was I to some level, that the issue should have been dealt with by raising concerns to Obama. But that changed pretty fast, to be honest, as we saw how Occupy protesters were being treated. Um, and then the other big thing was, you know, BLM, right? The Ferguson uprisings. I think that was the really big part of what I saw was, again, the disillusionment coming through. Like, there's this guy who's supposed to, I know there's a lot of, like, um, restrictions to what he could have done. I think that's important to also raise. But at the same level, I remember, like, you know, apart from certain, certain flashes of where he would talk about his own connection to these issues to some level, it was a very disappointing and kind of sometimes jarring thing to see this person talk about these issues of racial justice in, in a way that wasn't that different from any Democrat, really. Um, it was, you know, oh, we're going to have training, we're going to have, uh, you know, body cameras. And also at the end of the day, this is not how you're supposed to do it. Like he would, you know, he keeps saying nowadays even more so about activists on the ground. Yeah, sure. yeah he's gotten yeah. worse. Yeah. He's gone, I, you know, actually, I don't know if it's gotten worse or maybe we, well, I think he's gotten more sure. annoying because sure. there's no change coming from him. Like his point of view hasn't evolved. Like, no, like it's just, he's stuck in this weird, you know, Harvard law kind of, kind of like thinking about policy. And because if you look back, he's said really weird things anyway like the michael moore clip of him drinking water at flint and then you know trying to show that you know the water isn't that bad and then you know the people in flint just being heartbroken seeing this man that they had hope in just kind of really diminishing so that was always there i think what's getting different is that more of us are just getting more annoyed with this person who's like it's not changing it's not relating to what's going on like how can you keep saying to us the same story when it keeps happening in this particular way of outrage and repression and you're saying things like well you know if you vote for this guy this is going to be amazing if you're going to do this small thing it's going to be great this is not how you're supposed to do it and even like recently with the um the elections right he was always he always patronized and talked down to black and brown people like he really did and sometimes there were those of us who wanted that and i know a lot of like older folks were like that's you know he needs to talk to young people because you know authoritatively usually, or whatever yeah exactly oh he yeah. needs like he's like our uncle like he'll be the guy who'll speak truth to you even though you're like, just like staring at him and thinking like i have not seen you doing like out here with us at all like i don't understand well you deal with it but it just gets more and more annoying when like even recently with the trump election no, sorry with the trump vote uh there was like a slight bump right on, among african-american men voting for trump um, it's it's a worrisome thing to see, but to be honest, it wasn't like this. It was a, still a slight bump if you think about all people who are white voting for him, or even other groups like uh, Latinos or even Asians. But he, I think, said in an interview that the reason why there is like African American men voting for Trump is hip hop or something, like hip hop music. And it's like, I don't think that's not something he didn't believe before, maybe. But now it's just getting ridiculous because all of us living in the reality and living on the ground are are facing things that are pushing us away from him. I think that's what's going on. Because how can mm -hmm. you, it sounds like such a, 
curmudgy thing to say, like, oh, it's this and this. And that's always been there. But now I think less and less of us have the patience to deal with that kind of talking point. It's, it all seems kind of Bill Cosby-esque in a way, yeah. uh, and, and mm-hmm. which is interesting right. because, because uh, you know, one of the part of the conversation here is, you know, is this, you know, sort of, um, you know, who do, who do communities recognize as authorities and, right. uh, and, and where, you know, and, and, and the class basis, I think, and sort of the, the, the kind of moralizing basis of, of so much of, of that messaging. And I think there's a lot of different things going on there, but uh, at any rate, um, you know, now at this point, as your article points out, we, our government bodies and public representation it has never seemed more diverse on kind of a surface level. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, economic crisis plagues us, wages are too low, we're being forced to work for those low wages because of deliberate stoppage of unemployment benefits. And those right. jobs are COVID threatening and workers in, in many ways are, are becoming very militant in some contexts, mm-hmm. but also are in very, very precarious positions. So lots of diversity comparatively, but lots right. of economic misery and lots of hierarchy and and inequality. And that's also one of the starting points of your article. Yeah, and I think, so when I wrote this piece um, and I was thinking about it, it, you know, for me, I like, again, the way I, I, I hope it comes off is like, I, I also recognize the importance of representation. I recognize the the importance of having some people in power who could at least mediate or provide some kind of moderation on the more extreme right-wing kind of politics, even within the Democratic Party, right? Like for every Joe Biden, it doesn't hurt to have maybe someone of color who could, you know, with those lived experiences, say to him once in a while, uh, what you just said was really bonkers or it doesn't make sense. I don't think they'll say that, but like something to push him. So from my point of view, there is a benefit to that kind of representation. I'm very glad to see more uh, women, more people of color running for office. I think we need more. And technically too, just because of the conditions, the material conditions that women and people who are racialized as non-white find themselves in, they're going to keep trending towards a more like liberal and left perspective. I think that's the truth too. Um, but what I was trying to also show is that even with that, there is a ceiling. So like, cause for me, I think, you know, when I'm visualizing someone who might read a piece like this, I'm thinking of someone who's already kind of leaning liberal, but who may get caught up in this idea that if we elect somebody or, or even with, um, say, for example, the recent uh, hate crimes against uh, Asian Americans, you know, like uh, if we have like, I don't know, uh, certain Asian American businesses being supported um, and such and such that we can somehow like that will be the, the path towards like liberation or something. What I was trying to say is that there is some measure, well, not maybe for businesses, because I don't have a <laughs> small or big. I'm not really a fan <laughs> necessarily. But in terms of representation politically, you know, for some things, we need somebody there. Like, we need people who are trans to speak up and say, listen, this policy is going to materially hurt us. And oftentimes in certain rooms, we lack that, right? We lack certain people and we'll never, you know, as much as we want to be left, we will miss those things unless someone really challenges us. But for me, there's a ceiling. And that's why I was writing this piece. There is a ceiling to what we need. Honestly, like right now, the crisis, like you mentioned, is so <laughs> bad like we are living in a time, like I've done interviews for other pieces where people have said, like, you know, experts have said, this is like beyond compare in recent memory. Like what we're dealing with is beyond compare. We've, 
like even in the 40s and 50s, there may have been a social democratic solution that would have lasted the 20 years that it did, um, because capitalism always breeds crisis, but at least it's lasted for something. This is not going to be solved. Like the crisis is not going to be solved unless there's really, really big changes happening. And those changes are going to take place beyond the ceiling that representation can provide. So even I mentioned like AOC, like I'm a huge fan. I, the reason why I joined DSA is because of her. Even if we have more AOCs in power, that ceiling will still be there unless we generate some independent political force that can push for things that we not only need because socialists want it, but people need it like healthcare and housing. And so, yeah, so the ceiling is really low and representation itself, you know, it can't really meet those kind of needs anymore because capitalism itself is just going bonkers, right? Like, it's really insane. Like, sometimes I have to pause and think, like, this year alone is one of the most, I mean, again, I don't want to keep saying millennial, millennial, like I'm writing some sort of, like, annoying article about it, like, I'm a millennial. But my generation has been through so much crap. Like, when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, the Iraq War, that was seminal for some of us who are a little older but then you're talking about the Great Recession that did happen, and then you're talking about uh, BLM uprisings, right, in response to, to mil militarized police, and then you're talking about COVID. But in the midst of that, you're talking about neoliberalism to such a degree that, that like, it's also cracking. Like, it can't, it can't, it can't conform or adapt anymore. There, there's going to be something different. So the crisis we're in, it's, it's insane. Like I look outside my window and I walk outside and I, you know, I still organize with our chapter. And sometimes I have to like take a breath and realize like, yeah, no, this is like the most insane. I can't even believe it. Like I can't even put it in words. Yeah. <laughs> but regardless, it's representation very accelerated. can't be that. Yeah. And exactly. so many things that, you know, and <laughs> I'm even older and still feel like so many things happening now are unprecedented you know, even, right. uh, even in, in my lifetime. Um, and then, you know, and so for some of us who are just a few years older, uh, right. the, the first Gulf War was radicalizing in that way. And then to see the second, you know, the, the, the second one right. as a continuation of, and as a trajectory that in many ways began with that, you know, that first sort of piercing of that of that kind of particular right. veil and the and in many ways the the piercing of the uh and sort of slashing of the liberal internationalist uh assumption right. that had guided so much of the 20th century and of the of right. the late 20th century and the cold war and all right. of that and so it but it really is i mean it's not just your i know everyone every generation right. thinks that there's all these unprecedented things but it's absolutely true about this particular time period this particular part of the of the epoch so the article that we're talking about is your article the limits of descriptive representation it's available in the uh february 11th 2021 edition of current affairs currentaffairs.org mm -hmm. uh you have a bunch of other stuff uh that you've written but i want to talk more about this about this article i want to uh before we talk about this new way to think about diversity in politics that you want to discuss i also want to uh mention the role of or the the sort of place of uh, Kamala Harris, uh, the vice president, mm -hmm. um, who is an incredibly divisive figure to the left, mm -hmm. uh, and, and and this simultaneously 
a sign of what you're talking about, simultaneously a sign of progress in, in right. one sense, um, and also a sign of, of the stubborn maintenance of hierarchical politics on, uh, in the other sense. Talk about that. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, I mean, so to be really transparent, like, you know, my, I've been on the left because like, I've been fortunate to have uh, parents who are on the left. I mean, they're more like liberal now, um, but they've been on the left. So I've always been, I think it's important to say, like, I've always been on that direction and oftentimes call myself socialist before all this stuff was happening. But to be really honest, I was a contradictory person too. Like people are contradictions. I was very contradictory. At one moment I'd be like, I remember when Obama was elected, I was really emotional. Like I mentioned in the article, a friend of mine was calling me and it was genuine. Like we both were like, we were both South Asian Americans having dealt with 9-11. We were just like, there was a sense of relief. I mean, now it's misplaced, but I was really, we were really like, oh my God, thank God. Like, cause you know, it's funny, like the things that uh, Obama was criticized for by people who are right wing conservative, like, oh, he lived in Indonesia. He has like an affinity for Islam or he um, has these like Hindu symbols in his pocket. Those are the things that, you know, people in my community at that time were like, this is great. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. Like, we'll finally have somebody who won't look at us as being uh, so, so out there or anything like that. And him growing up in Hawaii, it just added to that. It's just something to say. But the same thing with Kamala. Like, I remember, you know, learning more about her, you know, I didn't exactly know her position in Cali, but I knew during the Obama years, there's this person. And I, and again, finding out that she's um, half Indian American uh, was a big deal, at least for me then. Um, so I'm saying all that because even with her election, it is something to, I don't know if it's like to say celebrate, but it's something to acknowledge, right? Like people, my parents, um, who are fairly politically aware, but, you know, again, um, you know, you know, like are not necessarily as left as I am now, I think they represent, uh, the norm in, in the community, like you know, among South Asian Americans, uh, most of us vote Democrat. Most of us have a kind of central left politics, and most of most of us are we're very happy about Kamala Harris because it, it is a big deal for some people, um, and honestly unheard of even a few years ago before Obama. Like to even imagine Obama or Kamala in seats of power as they are now, it's like it, it is pretty amazing. But like you raised, and the complicated nature of it is like I, I remember when she got the nomination for for being vice president. And then, of course, uh, when Biden won, there was a feeling of, for me, like, again, like, oh, great. But but I, again, this is all because of the conditions we're living in. I was already pushed to look at this as being kind of also pathetic, to be honest. Like, I just, it's weird, right? Like, it's a complicated <laughs> feelings that I had because of the fact that you're still talking about someone who was a prosecutor. Um, you're still talking about someone who provides some cover, in fact. I mean, Biden himself is, was a segregationist, honestly. And we all remember, you know, the time when she took him to task for that, but then quickly caved to that. And even now, when you're thinking about um, all the different ways in which the U.S. empire still exists, um, there hasn't been that change. You get, I mean, Lloyd Austin, I, I believe is the first African-American person or man, I think first African-American person to be defense secretary. And again, 
there was not as much excitement on my part for that because again i think he comes from like a private he comes from a military background but still it's like you know we're we're bombing people we're providing bombs to murder palestinians we're still interested i'm sure in leading coups so even with kamala harris there it's just complicated the worry for me basically is that people like kamala harris can be used to provide cover and i think that's the worry for me. So there's some there's some real element of like this is a great progress because this would not have happened 40, 50 years ago at all. Um, but at the same time, there's this concern that I have because you you then see that some people will disengage from having real tough conversations about things like U.S. empire because they will automatically see Kamala Harris as both a sign of progress. And as somebody who represents like, yes, the problem is solved. We can sort of, you know, go back to living our lives and not really worry about things we once were worried about when Trump was in power. I even see a, a, a variant of that where people are, where it makes people nervous in some sense um, hmm. that if we critique empire when... Right when a Barack Obama is president um, and when we, if we expect that, uh, you know, this particular leader to, to take certain positions or to, you know, have a certain orientation towards politics that resembles the radical critique that we are urging, you know, from them, right. that, that the fear is that that puts them, uh, that puts right. the leader in a position of, precarity or danger in some way it's not it's never articulated completely right. and so it's hard to to say exactly what the logic is but there's certainly a sense of you know if if obama had tried to do what you're saying that he right. should do uh what do you don't you think that that would have been you know a real yeah. dangerous position to take he has to be careful um and you know i mean and i guess the you know the the interesting thing about that is that there's that there's probably a kernel of truth uh yeah in, in in some of the at least to say in the larger sense um you know yes uh uh bourgeois leadership is you know very factional and complicated and you know is probably nasty brutish and short uh you know and all of these things but but it's but it's interesting and i get the same kind of thing with some of these conversations about uh, about um, uh, VP Harris, you know, right. is this, um, you know, well, of course she had to take these positions as a prosecutor, or of course she had to take, yeah, you know, and and it's, you know, and actually you're being privileged uh, by expecting this person right. to take a more radical position. So it's, I mean, neoliberals are smart. And so their right. arguments right. are going to tend to be somewhat nuanced in that right. way. And, and, uh, and there probably is a fear, this fear of well, looking more radical than we want to look right. or these things in that when you're in that sort of liberal bubble. Mm -hmm. Well, I just wanted to add, I, to be honest, like, like, again, I, I use my parents as an example. I use people I know as an example. Again, these are people who are liberal. And I think the vast majority of Americans are, they lean left on things, even if they don't know. I think the vast majority of Americans do. So I just want to lay that on the 100%, table, right? Yeah, I totally right? agree. Even if they say the, even if they don't get it completely and they don't exactly know how yeah. they, how much left they are. Yep. I mean, yeah, th that's the justice, the reality. Um, but so even though they lean left, I actually don't think it's just neoliberals. I think that 
a lot of Americans too are worried, legitimately so, like you're raising, about how certain figures get treated, right? Like, again, with Obama, once he entered office, no one can dismiss the reality that he was facing. Like, the Tea Party was formed, this, like, this insane group of, like, pretty much, like, middle class to upper middle class uh, white voter, you know, quote unquote, taking back their country in the shape it did if it was a white Democrat, to be honest. It's like right now, Biden's in power. And yes, there is like militancy and these conspiratorial forces. But if Biden was back then, I don't think he would have generated that kind of immediate response, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, and the same thing would come out. There, there is, I, I've heard this conversation before among people I know who are not neoliberal, who are, like I said, who are leaning left or liberal, who do worry about, you know, who want, who do understand from an ex- experiential level of how, you know, you could be treated for taking a certain position or how you can be seen. And I think that's also a vestige of, you know, it's it's a vestige of like, you know, racist politics, but also maybe some form of anti-communism, right? Like, this is something that other researchers have, have mentioned, like this, you know, this kind of idea that you have, um, if, if you're a person of color, you, you will automatically be seen immediately as, quote unquote, holding a grudge against certain people, white people, when you enter halls of power. And then you're also going to be seen as incompetent. And, th- and that's just the reality. Like, I felt that too. I can't deny it. Like, it's something we, you know, and even when I'm like, I don't need to prove anything, you, you kind of, you know, for the sake of your job or whatever, and the you know, people around you, you kind of do, right? So I, yeah, so I definitely think that's something that is also something I've heard from people who wouldn't, who don't even know what neoliberalism is. Like even like uh, talking to family and friends, you know, there's an element of people being like, yeah, it, you know, if Kamala Harris says something, she'll be seen as, you know, quote unquote, an angry black woman, mm-hmm, right. or she'll be seen, right, as, um, and if she brings up her Indian heritage, she'll be seen as uh, very, um, like, and it, it, it connects to also being Asian American, like you're seen as a professional other or foreigner. So maybe you want to lean more into being like a pro-US military type to show that you are USA first versus everything else. I get that. And I, I, I also think that's initially when Obama was like, you know, in his first couple of years, I kind of understood that game. But I also think the way I responded to people has been like, you know, that's true. Like, we should always defend people against bigotry. You know, we should always defend people against misogyny and racism, right? We don't want anyone, the critique about Kamala should never be about, you know, her gender or race, obviously. But the way I've dealt with discussing that is to say, well, in the end, though, you know, that's true, but they, we elected them to provide us stuff. Like, we, you know, you have the Republicans. If you put choices between Pence and Kamala, it's pretty obvious. It's Kamala Harris. But now they're in power. Like, what's the point of all this if you're not expecting something beyond a $1,400 check? I don't even know if there's going to be another one necessarily. And if your life still stinks, like, even with the border, right? Like, Biden, as much as some people are portraying him as this kind of New Deal figure or something, and as much as some people are, like, really excited about Harris, both of them have have continued certain policies that, again, the same people who are defending them now were angry about. So that's another way I try to say, like, aren't you concerned about this in this way? Um, and also with Obama, really quickly, 
I, yeah, I totally agree. I've heard this argument also from, again, family and friends. But after a while, I also said, like, yeah, true. Like, the Tea Party movement is a bunch of folks that we have seen terrorizing us. Like, that's obvious. But you don't beat a force like that with Obama politics. Right. That's the other way of doing it. You don't beat a force by doing what Obama did, which was show more respect to the right wing than the left or anything. Like, for every, like, again, back to the, the quote-unquote hip-hop reason he says for mm-hmm. black men to vote for trump has he ever said anything about white americans voting for trump in that same way i doubt right. that like right. he 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 does the same kind of thing to obscure what's what's really necessary to build the world that we kind of deserve well you wonder what the end game is too with that because you know it, it could be that someone might initially have that soft approach or initially have that compromising mm. approach as a as a kind of a judo move right as a kind of a you know let you know let them give them enough uh you know uh, uh, enough ammunition to to shoot themselves in the foot um right. but then we have to move in and then we have to do something decisive right. in order for that and i think that so for a lot of folks with obama it was that waiting for the other shoe to drop in terms right. of you know is that a strategy and what's the end game right. to that to that strategy so talk about then what you know you would say is a, a, a new approach or a new way uh of looking at um, diversity as part of a mm. more comprehensive materialist based uh, uh and, and and truly liberatory kind of politics where uh you know where where do you want to t- then take that mm-hmm. that term and that concept and you have a lot of great examples historical uh examples that you call on in the article talk mm-hmm. about your solution yeah and i just want to first raise like what i'm talking about is you know stuff that i've got and gathered from really amazing scholars like you know lester spence who I recommend everyone reading his book, Knocking the Hustle. Um, uh, Kiangi Yamada Taylor, obviously, and also a real big hero of mine, Manning Marable. I think, you know, he passed away some time ago, a few years ago, but, you know, he's written a lot of, of work on mm-hmm. figuring out this kind of quote-unquote new politics or this politics in the conditions we have now. Because things do change. Like, the racism we're facing is different. And I also think like American politics has also become more Looney Tune-esque anyway. Cause like, like for me personally, you know, the worry is, you know, the co-optation from the top about certain rhetoric and momentum that would otherwise be steered towards achieving leftward change. But there's also literally the real, the real worry also about uh, the right wing. Like it's, it's an insane time again, because we're, it's just weird. Like there is an acceptance of diversity, which is great at some level, but then there's also people like Tucker Carlson, who is extremely watched, basically rehashing eugenicist points of view. You know, like just basically saying like poor people, you know, immigrants, and we know like immigrants of color are just incapable of being good Americans or whatever that means. And we all know like that's the talking point that was used, you know during the new deal for people who were opposing it like oh there's no you know no William S. Buckley made that argument a lot right. and, and it's so funny to me that people you know people nostalgically long for Buckley-esque <laughs> conservatism know. as as this sort of gentle genteel uh right. you know kind of uh kind of white bourgeois uh you know gentility right. uh when he was you know he 
penned more than one op-ed about right. how uh, African-Americans were not capable of self-governance. Right. Well, the thing is, he has a show on PBS. He gets to wear a suit. He gets to talk in that right. weird, oh, so that, romantic that, accent. And that's right? <laughs> sort of Tucker is, you know, Tucker right. is sort of this Nazi version of William F. Buckley, which right. I think tells you how short that distance is. I think a lot of yeah. people try to exaggerate that distance right. bet between right. the old school and the new school of conservatism. And I think that that's right. just a, a ridiculous exaggeration, but we digress. Let's go back right. to, you're talking about right. your, your um, so, uh, this approach that you, that you, right. you, in which you utilize and, and deploy mm -hmm. a lot of these wonderful uh, radical uh, writers and traditions. Yeah, sure. And the reason why I brought that up is also like, this is the terrain we're in still. Like, I do think there is some differences too, but that has a lot more to do with the, because the Tucker Carlson's, the fact is most of the right wing, I mean, we would always be in this position. Eventually the conservative movement would always land in the Tucker Carlson world because inherent to conservatism is this, is, is this need for hierarchy, naturalizing hierarchy? Is this need for finding mm -hmm. the undeserving and deserving? That's always going to be. It has to go But there. it has to, it will always go there, regardless of what part of the world. And this explains why we're seeing the right wing in different parts of the globe too. There's always going to be that kind of end result of like, well, you know, we're always going to have inequality. And one could say like, well, that's true, I guess. But shouldn't everyone have at least some modicum of like, you know, living? And then they'll just, you'll see all that stuff happen. Like, well, these people, they don't really, they're not human or something else, right? But but I do think the right-wing movement right now is like all of that almost. Like it's at a level that I think is a little bit, like even the, the GOP literally not exists now just to stop government from working, to create crises so it can take more advantage of. And that includes the, the constituencies they have now, which are like very Tucker Carlson-esque, very much like the... Um, they are now just the people who've been stewing in Fox News and Reaganism. They're just now like, they've been stewed in it for 20, 30 years and now they're ready um, to really take over. But, so I raise that because I think that's the terrain as well. But for me, the, the, the quote unquote new politics that I see is solving that, that problem and also solving the crisis we're in, regardless of like, you know, how many Tucker Carlson's get on TV is, uh, is really, again, the idea that the system we have now, the, the, the bourgeois institutions we have now, were a never meant to to um, solve the crisis of capital, and they will always they will need to be dismantled, if not, you know, have to be pushed by um, people who are organized, not just by from below, but just you know, organized to fit their own kind of material interests as working people, as working class people as uh, people of color who've been oppressed and exploited for a long time. So for me, it's like the solution is we need organizers and left-wing groups like the DSA even to cultivate a constituency that is independent of the Democrat and Republican Party. That doesn't mean we want people to not vote or anything or whatever, but we cannot, one of the issues that labor and the left are still tied like to the, future electoral prospects of the Democratic Party. So if the Democrats win, not necessarily great for us, but better than Republicans. But that just like what, what, we're, what we're seeing now with Biden and Kamala Harris, like they don't feel they're, you know, in some ways I'm like, if I was Biden, 
Um, I would also feel very much like I don't need to do a minimum wage hike. I don't need to, uh, you know, stop the bombing of Palestinians, and I can just talk down to Rashida Tlaib in a in a in a meeting and say, "I hope your grandmother's okay," because there's no independent pressure um, on them. And I think to get that independent pressure, you know, we'll obviously need to organize working people, and to also sometimes understand how to connect labor with issues that impact segments of the working class differently, like dismantling of ICE, defunding the police, like these kind of connections need to be made as soon as possible, you know, in a way where we're not so concerned anymore about getting crumbs from the Democratic Party table, that we're now thinking about it in a way of like, look, again, if we develop a constituency, it doesn't mean we can't like pressure Democrats. It just means that we can actually more effectively. Right. It doesn't mean that we suddenly stop voting Democratic. Some people want to because it's still a process. A lot of people, again, like I, we mentioned um, just at the beginning or before this was being recorded, you know, we're talking about the American population population having been steeped in neoliberal thinking. And that is a material thing, too. It's not like people are just brainwashed because they're watching TV. That kind of response annoys me. It's more like American people are so overwhelmed with work. They have little time. To reflect on things and there isn't enough left-wing spaces or labor spaces for them to interact with hence they will develop kinds of thinking that could be like naturalizing capitalism or naturalizing competition or even saying things like i've heard yeah times suck but we just need biden or times suck and i don't feel like voting like they're not going to the republican they're just gonna drop out mm -hmm. so what i'm hoping that we do differently is that we, we organize for power, and that requires, again, getting people to get involved in campaigns that move beyond an, an uh, electoral cycle. They can kind of have uh, maybe parties that may not win electorally, but behave like social socialist parties would. You know, you know that would provide community events, for example, even. provide fun community centers, or you know, do things where working people, especially black and brown people, would immediately, like, you know, if there's a problem in the community, they would immediately think of this group. They would they would go to the community center and say, I need to look for work for now. And then there'll be an educational session. I know this is like a lot, but like, there's no other way. No, building no spaces is really what, you know, right. in, in the broadest sense is what right. you're trying to do, you know, which is why uh, organizations like DSA that have one foot in the electoral uh, in electoral politics, but the other foot in direct action and uh, and community organizing is really important. And you draw on lessons in the article from the communists organizing in yeah. the Deep South uh, during uh, Jim Crow and the New Deal. Right. And again, like Robin D.G. Kelly, I know, I think this is so I'm, you know, that's from the Hammer and Hill book that he wrote, I think, two decades ago. It's been a while, I think in the late 80s. And there's like a new anniversary uh, publication of, and he's everywhere. So again, I recommend people looking him up and listening to his uh, interviews about this book. I think the Dig, the Jacobin podcast, they just interviewed him recently about that book. Um, so yeah, like in his, in that book that talks about the Communist Party in Alabama uh, in the lead up to the Great Depression, right? At the peak of Jim Crow, the Communist Party understood their role as not necessarily oh, we're just going to run candidates, 
even though they did, and they were, were actually pretty successful given the repression that they faced, to be honest. And you're talking about Jim Crow is literally uh, the precursor to um, to what the Nazi party wanted to do. I mean, they took their ideas from, from the U.S., you know, segregationist policy. So it's like, I know people know, but I don't think people quite know, like, just how insane it is to organize, even for voting. Like, you will be shot, you will be disappeared. So the Communist Party knew that's important. And that's why they still focus on issues like getting people to register, because they knew that would that would do two things. It would definitely, for the conditions back then, you know, challenge Jim Crow, right? Um, but also it would at least show people living there, especially sharecroppers, many of whom are African-American, that, you know, um, their concerns really matter. And, and, you know, this is like an issue they cared about and for good reason. So what the Communist Party did was they built campaigns, they uh, they did their best to build and lead certain kinds of unions, sharecropper unions, unemployed unions of workers who were losing. Um, they also did other things like, again, well, community events. They held educational sessions. Again, people understood that Jim Crow was terrible. It wasn't like, you know, movements happened because everyone woke up one day and were like, oh my God, this, this system really sucks. They knew, but, but the issue is like, there's a sense of hopelessness still. If you're living under the system, you're not necessarily getting acquainted with alternatives or you're convinced that this is the natural way to be because you have all these white politicians, white people, and even so-called community leaders telling you that this is the way it's always going to be. So they provide educational sessions. They provided mutual aid, what we think of as mutual aid for people. But again, all of this was not to build an alternative framework immediately, but was to cultivate a constituency that could take on the uh, the Jim Crow politician that could take on even segments of the white working class who were you know you know willing to uh, kill their fellow worker to maintain a system that in the end also hurt them but definitely gave them more benefits at least in the short term. So the Communist Party was doing the things that I think we need to do now, which is cultivate that constituency by building a community, and that means like again community community centered centered work, but also some kind of direction that builds towards challenging authority, not necessarily, you know, I'm not trying to say like, I'm not trying to call out a certain kind of like a spectrum of the left, but there's a certain tendency that I worry about the left where we, uh, where we don't take seriously the need to fight for power, where sometimes there's this sense of like, let's decentralize everything. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is just going to be purely horizontal. Uh, just let, the person in front of you lead, even though that person might not know what's going on because they are busy with work. And in the end, you may build some kind of alternative utopia, kind of, in certain areas, but the rest of the capitalist society is still able to continue to exploit and oppress the vast majority of people. So one of the lessons I took from the book and that I was like really uh, taken by is this idea that, yes, you can build community, which is necessary, but you have to cultivate a constituency that's ready to take on the tasks, the historic task of leading revolution, of, you know, defying and defeating those who stand in our way. And back then, that was the Jim Crow politician, the business owner, and even segments of the white working class. All right. Uh, Anything else that you would recommend that people read, or do you want to uh, repeat uh, or reiterate anything that you feel like is just 
really vital uh, for anyone taking kind of their first dive um, into uh, the, the importance of organizing and the importance of organizing for power in, in this context. Yeah, no, I, I actually do think Lester Spence's book on Knocking the Hustle, even though it focuses on like black politics and its relationship to neoliberalism or black political leadership and neoliberalism, that book to me still is very like, as an Asian American, I feel it's, you know, there's differences, but it's very applicable. And, you know, I do think that book is accessible, frankly. You know, I also think it's helpful to also look up his uh, speeches, his lectures. He's a really good speaker and he's really good at breaking things down. Kiyangi Yamada Taylor, I think, you know, her first book, uh, you know, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation is a perfect text for this cue. It's very accessible, but yet at the same time, it doesn't provide easy solutions necessarily. Like the, the analysis is very complicated, but again, it doesn't talk down to the reader. It just does a really good job of explaining things and providing context. Um, Beyond Black and White by Manning Marable. He wrote this, I think in the mid 1990s, he did update the text when Obama got elected. So there's an updated version of it. Um, again, same you know, kind of praise, very, like, again, the analysis is not simplistic at all, frankly, um, but it's very accessible still and exciting to read because it's a very, it's a lot of essays he wrote that are connected and they go through different topics sometimes. And it's kind of like exciting. Um, other people I would recommend would be Walter Rodney. Uh, he was a um, uh, Afro-Guyanese uh, Marxist and writer and thinker. He was assassinated I believe when he was 38 um, in Guyana. And again, his books are like his big magnum opus, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa is pretty big. So it can feel a little daunting, but the book is very accessible again. Like it's written in a way where he explains what is colonialism and what's the difference between colonialism and imperialism. And these are terms that we toss around, but even for me, someone who's been privileged enough to take the next step, because I, you know, I worked as a journalist and I still write because that's how I view myself. But I've been privileged enough to go into, you know, a doctoral program. That's a privilege, honestly, in some ways. And so, but even for me, I sometimes get lost in the definitions. And this is, you know, I read this book fairly recently. I've read it twice now. I've gained a lot from it. And um, he's a really good writer. And then, of course, Angela Davis, are prisons obsolete? Mm-hmm. We've read sections sections of it for DSA. She's really good at explaining things in a really easy way. And then just overall big picture about capital, because I feel like, you know, that's part of my article and my thinking is um, A People's Guide to Capitalism by Hadas Tier. She wrote this book. It's published by Haymarket. We've actually had her come to our chapter and speak. It's, again, I'm a Marxist. Uh, I've read Marx. And I do think he's actually a little bit more easier to read than some people give him credit, credit for, <laughs> yeah. um, to be honest. But to... To be also honest, I did read Capital, finally, volume one last year at the beginning of COVID. And I still, I got a large chunk of it, but I'll be real, like him comparing linen to everything was a little bit overwhelming. So reading Hottest Tears book, which explains what Marx is saying, but updates it with the lens that deals with race and gender is really a phenomenal text. Like, I really feel so much more confident in understanding the contemporary part too, because she's not just talking about what Marx said, she's taking it and updating it, but 
showing how his thinking still is relevant. It's really good. It's re it really is a people's guide to. And I interviewed her, and um, or I interviewed her, but I also we asked questions of, you know for her, and she said that one of the reasons why she wrote the book was because there's a lot. You know, she just felt like people were really looking for an intro, you know, to capitalism that is both updated and accessible. Great. We've been talking to Sadeep Bhattacharya, uh, an organizer with Central Jersey DSA, uh, a writer uh, and a PhD student at Rutgers University, uh, who's also uh, been kind enough to share uh, his poetry with us at cowboysonthecommons.org. And uh, Sadeep, I hope that we can continue um, to have you share uh, your perspectives and your research and your work um, with us on, on a variety of things around the, these themes. And we really appreciate having you. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. I just want to say, um, really, honestly, like, I'm very, very, I don't do podcasts a lot. I, you know, get nervous a lot. So it means a lot for you to have extended invitation and you know, it means a lot to be able to talk these things with you as well and learn from you and everything. So yeah, it's an honor on my part to really be here and to be able to like, I don't know, think about things. <laughs> uh, it's, you, mutu so. it's mutual aid. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, exactly. Uh, and yeah, uh, uh, definitely that, that feeling is, is shared on our end. Hope that you can come back soon. Uh, have sure. a great weekend and uh, thanks again for, for joining us. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our introductory forum on wage abolition. Our initial presentation will be about 20 minutes long, and the rest of our allotted time will be devoted to questions and discussion. If you have questions or comments, uh, as many questions or comments as you like, uh, you can please put them in the chat as you are willing and able. And if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook, you are welcome to leave comments and we'll try to see them on those pages, but we can't make any promises. A little bit about us. Solidarity Collective, uh, Solidarity House Cooperative is the worker-owned media team of Solidarity Collective, which is the host of tonight's event. Uh, the event is also co-sponsored by Southeast Wyoming Democratic Socialists of America, of whom, if you wish to get more information, you can visit their Facebook or Twitter pages as well, or you can email them at sewydsa at protonmail.com. That's sewydsa at protonmail.com. And in a few minutes, we will put that email address in the chat uh, on in the Zoom room as well. Solidarity Collective, Solidarity Collective, excuse me, is a commune and intentional community in Laramie. We offer collaborative space, educational events, places to stay and live, organizing space, and media production for those fighting for a better world, a world without capitalism. You can support efforts uh, like tonight's uh, uh, Wage Abolition Forum and our many other efforts by subscribing to our Patreon for $5 a month uh, or more. Uh, and you can go to patreon.com slash Solidarity House uh, for more information on that. You can also email us for more information at solidaritycollectivewyo at gmail.com. That's solidaritycollectivewyo at gmail.com.
This presentation will be available via podcast and Facebook and YouTube video after we are done. My name is Matt. I'm one of the members of Solidarity Collective, and I'm joined tonight by Derek and Sean. Derek will begin the presentation in a moment by discussing the significance of wage abolition to the socialist movement in general. Sean will follow with detailed analysis of why, in the context of the capitalist system, wages are unjust and undesirable. I will follow Sean with a basic outline of alternatives to the wage system, and then Derek will conclude by asking whether the struggle for higher wages is compatible or incompatible with the struggle to abolish the wage system. Should workers continue to fight for higher wages while also fighting for the ultimate abolition of the wage system? Are those goals compatible or incompatible? And then we'll have further discussion. So to begin, we have Derek. Hi, everybody. Derek here. The abolition of the wage system is a longtime goal of anti-capitalist movements. This goal may sound fantastical and utopian, but what we want people to understand is that a lifetime of indoctrination and psychological programming by hegemonic capitalism is designed not only to encourage us to embrace capitalism on an intuitive level, but to mold us into creatures who are incapable of living our best lives, where we would be able to authentically make choices, form relationships, and build communities that are free from moneyed interests. We often use the terms alienation and atomization to refer to the disastrous effects capitalism has on the human psyche and social behavior. Therefore, initially conceiving of a socioeconomic system that is not hinged on working for wages can be difficult. To us, the wage system is a defining characteristic of capitalism. When the means of production are allowed to be privately owned by individuals, these individuals are given an abhorrently unequal share of social power. They're the ones who dictate wage levels. They're the ones who get a say as to where and how to build. And they are incentivized by the capitalist system to retain and increase their power by keeping wages low enough that their workers are too desperate to object to them and by prioritizing their profits over the well-being of society. This is why we are adamant that the climate crisis that the earth is facing is a result of capitalism, not the inherent result of humanity. The earth can provide for billions, but not billionaires, as they say. To us, being anti-capitalist and being anti-wages is one and the same. In 1890, two English socialist groups, the, socialist, the Social Democratic Federation and the Fabian Society, both signed the Manifesto of English Socialists, which contained the pledge Quote, we look forward to an end forever to the wages system. Marx and Engels continually asserted that piecemeal reforms could never achieve the transformation to a non-exploitative society, and that slogans such as a fair day's pay for a fair day's work were actually counterproductive because they tacitly accepted the inherently exploitative nature of capitalism. End quote. I'm going to end this introductory section to wage abolition by reading the preamble to the Organizational Constitution of the Industrial Workers of the World, a militantly anti-capitalist industrial union, which has been organizing workers for the past 115 years, which eloquently summarizes the need for working class unity in the struggle for wage abolition. Quote, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. There can be no peace so long as hunger and want are found among millions of the working people 
and the few who make up the employing class have all the good things of life. Between these two classes, a struggle must go on until the workers of the world organize as a class, take possession of the means of production, abolish the wage system, and live in harmony with the earth. We find that the centering of the management of industries into fewer and fewer hands makes the trade unions unable to cope with the ever-growing power of the employing class. The trade unions foster a state of affairs which allows one set of workers to be pitted against another set of workers in the same industry, thereby helping defeat one another in wage wars. Moreover, the trade unions aid the employing class to mislead the workers into the belief that the working class have interests in common with their employers. These conditions can be changed and the interest of the working class upheld only by an organization formed in such a way that all its members in any one industry or in all industries if necessary, cease work whenever a strike or lockout is on in any department thereof, thus making an injury to one an injury to all. Instead of the conservative motto, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, we must inscribe on our banner the revolutionary watchword, abolition of the wage system, end quote. And with that, we give you Sean. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm Sean. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the more specific reasons about why we should oppose the wage system. Um, first of all, none of the factors used to determine wages are just or rational. Wages are determined by a social relation that privileges the class with power. They're not an objectively rational outcome of work as such. <clears throat> Why should the cost of reproducing labor, uh, the needs, the necessary goods we need to live, which are produced by labor, plus the existing physical capital, also produced by labor, equal profit to the capitalist. Um, again, this is a historical social relation rather than some objective rational fact. Two, wages are a means of stealing value of the value of labor from the worker. Since there would be no uh, value without humans working with or maintaining machines or without time spent producing things, there would be no new human value. Labor is the source of value, but only the cost of reproducing labor according to minimally, minimal established standards of living goes to the working class under the existing system. They work but don't get the full value of their work. Um, Three, the wage system is undemocratic. Workers should have a say in what profit is otherwise spent on. Surplus as it exists now, or what's produced beyond what we need to live, is currently the pr private preserve of individual capitalists rather than, the, rather than a democratically allocated part of the whole social wealth. It is production for the maximization of exchange value versus what workers or society decides is useful. Um, there's no democratic decision-making involved. Four, the wage system pits workers against one another. In terms of the wage system itself, workers have to compete for jobs and wages, um, which is the reason why, for example, scabs uh, in strikes offer to work for less than um, what the strikers are currently making. 
Um, so workers compete against each other rather than collaborate around their shared interest. In terms of the historically uneven development of capitalism, my interest in, for example, inexpensive consumer goods is at odds with the interest of workers in the global south who make my clothes or produce my smartphone. Five, the wage system serves to maintain class divisions that are matters of life and death. So wages have been kept stagnant for a long time now, and the cost of living and housing and medical care is rising. A more specific example would be the tiny cost of production of insulin, for example, plus the average rate of profit in the pharmaceutical industry and intellectual property rents driving from that um, equals death for many because they can't afford the cost of this objectively rather inexpensive good. Six, wages tend to decrease as capitalism decays. Um, there's, in Marxist theory, the theory of the tendency of the rate of, um, so as, fixed, as the ratio of fixed capital to labor um, costs increases, less new value is produced. There's also global competition between capitalists driving the, the um, wages down and accumulation of value for the sake of accumulating even more value puts a constant pressure to reduce real wages. There's also the need for political and spatial fixes to address this, for example, labor arbitrage or offshoring and structural adjustment in the periphery to attempt to, to slow the decline of uh, profit. Um, and so to conclude, Marx, uh, in the quote about um, the abolition of the wages system, notes that workers' struggles for the standard of wages are incidents inseparable from the whole wages system, that in 99 cases out of 100, their efforts at raising wages are only efforts at maintaining the given value of labor. And the necessity of debating their price with the capitalist is inherent to their condition of having to sell themselves as commodities. They ought not to forget that they're fighting with effects, but not the causes of those effects, that they're slowing the downward movement, but not challenging its direction, that they're applying palliatives, not curing the malady. Uh, and that's all I have. So if not wages, then what? What would we replace the wage system with? All of these are derivatives of the assumption that, that we can reach a state of the world where workers are no longer competing with one another for wages and no longer debating uh, the finer points of the wage system with the capitalists. There are a number of different options, all of which are premised on worker empowerment. First, obviously, we could keep and modify the wage system and radically alter how wages are determined. For example, we could guarantee a living wage and then increase incentives for socially significant reasons like needing more people in one industry or another. Now, automation is likely to gradually decrease the spheres where such work could or should be incentivized. And even if we concluded that material incentives were good because they increase uh, total social good. Well, as we've talked about, wages are not necessarily a good way to incentivize socially needed work. 
But at any rate, it's obvious that we could, perhaps in the short term, make the wage system much more fair than it is without eliminating it. But there are other options. We could institute some sort of universal income. Most of us have heard of UBI or universal basic income. Universal basic income in theory uses the total wealth of society to generate dividends to each member of society. There are lots of debates about how to generate that dividend, how to prevent UBI from becoming a means of social control without worker or popular empowerment, how to prevent UBI from causing inflation or rent-seeking behavior on the part of landlords and capitalists and so on. But if capitalism were overthrown, providing all people with a minimum amount of credit through periodic payments might make sense. It might seem reasonable. Or third, instead of a UBI, communities could ensure universal access to meeting basic needs, food, education, healthcare, housing, transportation, and other necessities, and even some so-called luxuries like art, entertainment, and recreation, which are just as much necessities for human beings. Those things could be socialized and made universally available, making wages obsolete, at least as a means of meeting basic needs. And finally, and certainly not finally, there are other ideas, but finally here for today, consider worker ownership. So uh, worker cooperatives tend to be, even in this system, uh, more successful uh, and more uh, um, profitable, uh, both uh, materially and spiritually for workers than regular private firms are in the present system. And although current worker-owned cooperatives operate in a market economy, even in that economy, workers who co-own their own businesses, and frequently even workers who work for other worker-owned businesses, are given both more control over their working conditions and more equitable shares of the money the businesses make in a way that connects them to their work better than mere shareholders are connected. This is why many socialist theorists believe that current worker cooperatives are perhaps a model for a post-capitalist economy. Some important things to remember here, though, first of all, it's up to us. It's important to keep in mind the role of democratizing the economy. If the economy itself were under democratic control uh, with criteria like meeting needs and remaining sustainable, then any outcome um, almost by definition uh, would be able to meet more people's needs than in the present system. The point is that we would determine what we receive for work. We would determine that together through democratic deliberation not some mystical law of nature or the profit needs of a few capitalists. In order to do this, we would also have to center our struggles against racism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, ableism, and overthrow colonialism and return stolen land to indigenous people. Another thing to keep in mind is that vestiges of the old economic order might remain for some time in the transition to a new economy. Socialists generally believe that vestiges of the old distributive systems might exist until we specifically overthrow them, and the wage system may be a part of this. A revolution against capitalism and the establishment of a cooperative and sustainable economy to replace it is not then a one-off event, but is a continuing revolution with no end as we progressively eliminate more and more vestiges of material hierarchy. Should socialists still fight for higher wages?
Yeah, that's a significant question that's posed to us. That is uh, whether or not we should keep fighting for increased wages when we could spend all that effort working to abolish the wage system altogether. So this question is an open question. It's worthy of discourse. And you'll probably pick up on what my opinion is, but I'm not going to come out and tell you what the right answer is. The two major schools of thought are, on one hand, fighting for increased wages can be thought of as part of the battle for wage abolition rather than a separate effort. Material gains are good for the working class. They give us some power over our bosses, and they put us in less desperate economic circumstances, thereby increasing our ability to fight for further advances. It may be seen like the snowball effect, where the working class gains more power and popularity with every small victory along the way. So if working 40 hours a week, we're truly able to meet the material needs of the average worker, we would have so much more time and energy to give to labor organizing and, you know, chip away at that mandated um, 40 hour work week until it's more in our favor. So a saying that I like to repeat is like, think eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours to plot the overthrow of the capitalist class. On the other hand, however, the other side of the argument, working for increased wages can be seen as simply tinkering with the machinery of death rather than dismantling it. In this view, all the time and energy being used to fight for higher wages would be better spent used to abolish the wage system altogether. Another aspect of this pushes back against the idea of the reformist snowball effect, arguing that small advances and compromises with the capitalist class tend to take the steam out of true anti-capitalist movements. And people making small victories, such as now being able to earn enough that we feel like we don't have to sift through trash or be on government aid to survive, tricks us into thinking we have won the war, when in fact the majority of the value of our labor is still going into our bosses' pockets. And they are using that money, a lot of it, to fund the hyper-exploitation of people in other parts of the world. Something that I think it's interesting to think about is the successes of past labor organizers and how we owe it to them that we have such things as weekends, OSHA, and child labor laws. All of these modest improvements had to be fought for, and if our progenitors didn't give their blood, sweat, tears, and often their lives for these advances, there's no reason to think that the capitalists would have come up with these on their own without anyone pressuring them to. Now, if the labor movement of the past successfully overthrew capitalism altogether and the wage system, millions of lives wouldn't have been lost in capitalist wars and capitalism-induced environmental collapse. I'm personally not historically informed enough to take a stance on whether or not a complete overthrow of capitalism would have been possible in the past, given the material and social conditions of the time. And I definitely don't want that sentiment to sound like a diminishment of our gratitude for them. But it does make me think of how hopefully future generations will look back at the anti-capitalist movements of our time and whether or not we could have dismantled capitalism altogether or, uh, or if the few reforms we got were all that were possible. Another thing to consider, though, is how much time we have left to work toward wage abolition before our planet is made unlivable by our current capitalist system. Lives are needlessly being lost and biodiversity choked out of existence every day capitalism is allowed to exist. Whether or not the nature of gradualist reform can make changes quickly enough to do away with the capitalist wage system should be a matter of active discussion because corporate pledges to 
cut emissions by 50% by the year 2050 obviously aren't going to cut it. IWW, a revolutionary organization, refers to the sentiment that Faraday's wages for a fair day's work as a conservative motto. Meanwhile, uh, the Fabian Society, which we mentioned before as explicitly explicit in their goal to end the wage system, at least at the time of their signing of the 1890 Manifesto of English Socialists, tends to espouse tactics of gradual reform to bring about change rather than revolutionary action. What I want to point out with this contrast, though, is that there are active organizations that you can join to get the ball rolling. What, regardless of which side of the reform versus revolution debate that you fall on, remember that the easiest thing to do is nothing, and we certainly can't afford to do nothing. These matters aren't simply matters of theory, and we need every bit of support we can get against the dictatorship of capital. That's our basic uh, presentation. And by the way, these slides are available and can be made available if anyone wants them. They can email us uh, at our uh, Solidarity Collective email address. We will also make them available on our various event pages on social media, uh, and uh, as well as other materials, uh, readings and, and links and other educational materials that people might have. Uh, but right now, uh, we would invite folks uh, to ask questions that they might have. Uh, the easiest way to ask those questions would be to type them in the chat uh, and we can take them in the order that they come in. And before the presentation even began, some folks knowing that we were making the presentation um, had some questions about this. Uh, now, Glenn Houlihan um, ha has a question that says, uh, what uh, literature would you recommend to looking into wage abolition further in terms of books um, and articles? And I actually have a small list that I've made just of the, of the basic Marxist works on that. And I'm going to copy and paste that here in just a minute. In the meantime, though, I wanted to present this question um, maybe to Sean and to anyone else who wanted to try to answer it. Um, and that is, the, the question is one of incentives, and it's kind of a devil's advocate question, I guess. Uh, those who are in favor of a wage system and in favor of wage work often say that people will not work without material incentives. The current debate about uh, unemployment benefits uh, has featured this argument that people are not taking jobs that are available because those uh, jobs um, are uh, because those, those uh, jobs don't pay an, as much as unemployment benefits do. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but uh, the question that, that I have is, what do you say to people who believe that you need the incentives of the wage system in order to get them to go to work? Yeah, I think, I think wages being like a tiny like percentage of what people actually produce sort of illustrates that like the products of your labor and the products of other people's labor collaboratively, like those are the incentives you need. Getting a, a fraction of that means like less of an incentive to actually produce stuff than producing, producing stuff for yourself and for other people around you and them producing stuff for you um, so I think like you could say that, that humans 
like want fulfilling work to do or that it comes naturally to them. But I think the fact that wages are such a small slice of what you actually produce as a person, what we all actually produce, that abolishing the wage system means more, not less. It means having control over what we produce, not, um, not just making people work for nothing. Um, and I think that that democratic aspect to it makes, makes abolition of the wage system more appealing rather than less appealing. Another participant says in, in, I think in response to that question, uh, Matthew says, uh, there's actually been a number of studies demonstrating that large monetary rewards for performance either have no impact or actually reduce performance, the larger the incentive, especially when any kind of mental faculty are involved in that kind of labor. Uh, did you want to uh, expand on that, uh, Matthew, or um, have others do that? Hi, sorry. Um, uh no, I think I pretty much said what I wanted to on that. I can find the study uh, or studies if people are interested, but it's very interesting. These have been in, um, in uh, psychology. Um, people have done experiments on monetary rewards for different kinds of tasks, different types of labor. And they found, as I said, that um, there's like a small incentive, there's like a small improvement in labor when it's like highly uh, physical manual labor. But the moment any sort of task starts involving any kind of thinking, and it doesn't even have to be super complicated, um, it actually increasing the reward actually causes poorer performance, amazingly. That is very interesting. Thank you for sharing it. And, and yeah, um, I know uh, speaking for myself, I would, I would love to see that site either during or even after uh, the program. Thank you so much for bringing it up. If there are no other questions right now, I wanted to throw a question to everyone and anyone who wanted to speak on this. Um, and that is, uh, what are people's opinions of UBI, universal basic income? One of the things that uh, I had uh, briefly mentioned in the presentation um, were that it, it seems like in the present system, at least, UBI might create things like rent seeking or uh, increase in prices, uh, even things like hyperinflation. But those seems like sort of political uh, contingency questions. They don't seem to really get to the uh, to the meat um, of that question. Um, now, one participant, again, Matthew says, uh, I'm very concerned that leftists fighting for UBI can be caught into an ultimately counterproductive white right-wing trap. Uh, what what do some of the rest of us think um, about UBI? I think as far as I'm concerned, some of the political contingency concerns are some of the first things that I think of. Like um, if we're given a few thousand dollars every month, what's to stop all of the landlords from all of a sudden increasing rent by a few thousand dollars? And so I guess like UBI seems to be a system where um, it's a, a reform where the capitalists are still given or retain control of the economy. And I guess there could be other things added to that, like, um, you know, the government imposed price controls to counter the potential inflation. Um, but I think 
something like universal access to basic services like housing, food, clean water, and healthcare is something that I feel is superior to universal monetary assistance? I would, I would say it seems to me that UBI would necessitate its own set of workers' struggles. So if we instituted UBI, we would have to have a struggle against rent uh, and against uh, raising rents. And we would have to have struggles for price controls and, and struggles against all of the negative externalities of UBI. And all of these would be ultimately class struggles as well as uh, obviously struggles along other kind of power axes, but definitely class struggles. Uh, and so kind of the simple answer to that is, well, if we're gonna have class struggles, no matter what we do, um, then you know maybe we should fight for UBI or maybe we should fight, as Derek says, uh, for a system of kind of a, a public option for everything sort of system or perhaps the collectivization uh, and socialization and even nationalization of some of these basic industries anyway. Yeah, as someone who's on disability, I often see a lot of these um, like UBI proposals under capitalism to be like underhanded ways of slashing other social social services. So I, I definitely agree with what Derek was saying about like access to services being preferable. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's like a marginal like improvement in and of itself, but um, yeah, agree with uh, Matt also that like it's part of a broader struggle um, and can't be taken as an end in itself. A little earlier, I posted some um, books uh, that have been helpful to me on understanding both the wage system and also alternatives to the wage system, particularly those centered around worker control. Uh, so I included Karl Marx's Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844, and specifically the third manuscript, Human Requirements and Division of Labor Under the Rule of Private Property, as a specific essay in that volume of Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. Also, value, price, and profit, which I feel like we've quoted from pretty extensively or paraphrased pretty extensively in parts of our presentation today. Also, of course, the Communist Manifesto, which I think is an interesting uh, juxtaposition or companion piece to the preamble of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. I always like to include Proudhon's what is property, even though uh, there's a lot of debate between various schools of thought uh, represented by these various authors. Uh, what is property or an inquiry into the principle of right and government uh, in which Proudhon uh, says property is theft. Couple of books on workers control and there's many others and I've actually uh, inadvertently uh, left off some even better ones that um, I will post on our event page. Um, but there's uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Ostergaard's The Tradition of Workers' Control and John Curl's very important, almost encyclopedic description of cooperatives in America called For All the People. Uh, and then add to that a link that Matthew has put at the bottom of the chat 
um, on uh, the negative correlation between reward size and performance. And I like this because we might not know scientifically what that whether there is a traceable relationship or, or uh, an inverse relationship. But the important thing is it's problematized. It's not something that we can just say thoughtlessly that wages or higher wages or higher material rewards necessarily coheres to human motivation. Uh, the way in which um, uh, pro-capitalist folks so glibly make that connection. And the fact that there's research that suggests otherwise, just as there is also some scientific research on the ways in which altruism are, is hardwired into humans, uh, all of these things I think are uh, really important to that. And uh, Matt also adds uh, a recommendation for fundamental principles of communist production and distribution from 1930 as another book. I also read a little bit while preparing for this presentation on the way in which the Soviets retained a wage system because they openly believed that that wage system was necessary due to incentives, that it was necessary to incentivize human productivity through the continuation of the wage system. I think that that's very debatable. And one wonders if that's one of the vestiges of wages uh, that the Soviets incorporated that ultimately uh, maybe served to help break down and undermine the success of uh, socialism in that country and in other countries where the, where the wage system was retained without any kind of radical transformation of it. So these are all really good questions. And it sounds like Matthew, you have, you have one more question. Yeah, I'm just wondering what your all thoughts are on this need to abolish money in order to get rid of the wage system and, you know, sort of replace it with something that can't be exchanged like a voucher system with expirations on it. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I have heard about this. I would love to see, maybe I would maybe have to study uh, a little bit more. I know that in the work I did for the public banking movement and other like monetary and, and radical sort of fiscal reform movements, there was always a contingent of people that said we could actually eliminate paper money uh, and the, the notion of fungible or transferable money. Uh, as, as part of that, um, but I never paid enough attention to it to have anything really intelligent to say about it. I know, uh, well, like Matt, I don't have uh, anything super detailed to say. I know Marx was um, pretty down on replacing like money with labor vouchers, but I do think um, there's a need eventually to abolish exchange value as a category and uh, produced for, for use rather than some like accumulation of exchange value for the sake of accumulating even more exchange value. Um, but yeah, I don't have anything intelligent to say beyond that. Well, I've put that phrase in the chat abolition of exchange value and transition to production for use so that 
curious people wanting to geek out on this question can copy and paste it into uh, a search engine or uh, just uh, into their own notes um, so that we can all kind of research this question ourselves. We want to thank everyone for coming to our little presentation, uh, the basics of wage abolition and the wage abolition movement. Obviously, the industrial workers of the world is a source that everyone can universally uh, peruse um, and talk to folks uh, in IWW about how they conceive of the relationship between industrial unionism, the concept of one big union, and the goal of that one big union, which is the abolition of the wage system. We owe a lot to the IWW for keeping that idea alive in the politics of American labor and American radical labor. So on behalf of our co-hosts at Southeast Wyoming DSA, as well as our hosts uh, at Solidarity Collective and Solidarity House Cooperative tonight, I thank everyone who attended via Zoom and also everyone watching on all of the live streams uh, keep uh, uh, keep watching and stay tuned to Solidarity House Cooperative for more uh, productions like this, more forums like this. We have everything from uh, the fight for 15 to the abolition of the wage system and everything in between. And that's what we're all about here. Uh, again, thank you everyone very much for coming. Uh, and we hope to, to see some of you at future organizing. And we think that Mark um, also discusses labor vouchers in the beginning of the Grundrisi. Uh, and um, again, uh, we can share some of the various sources and some of the and various sites that have been helpful to us on our event page. Thanks, everybody. Have a great evening.